0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 229. I'm Douglas Wilson, and I'm very glad you decided to join us here. I want to talk a little bit today about how humor is a deadly weapon. Humor humor is a deadly weapon. Of course, uh humor is a um, it's a fun entertaining sort of thing when you're telling stories around a campfire or when the family is when you're having a meal and and the meal between between dinner and dessert uh the family members start to telling stories about camping escapades or escapades when the when the kids were little and so forth and everybody's just laughing and had a good having a good time about this that or the other thing well that there the humor is not weaponized there the humor is not weaponized but this is an important thing one of the principles of war is surprise and i would argue that the essential element in humor itself even in the non-combative forms of humor like when a family's telling stories or when someone's Telling a joke, the thing that makes humor work is surprise. And I think this begins very early. So think of the first time you made a baby laugh out loud simply by putting a cloth in front of your face and pulling it away. So it's the element of surprise there is funny. Surprise is funny. I'm expecting one thing, I'm going along, going along, going along, and then something different happens. Something surprising happens. Now, if you are surprised, uh, one response to that surprise is laughter. The other response to that surprise is is horror. So if you um, let's say you saw space aliens landing uh, <laughs> landing in your city center and blowing up buildings, you would be surprised, presumably, you'd be surprised and also frightened, filled with horror. The, the surprise that you feel, Is entirely a negative reaction. Okay, it's entirely a negative reaction. And if you are sitting around telling stories, and someone sets up the joke nicely, and then they give you the punchline, and the punchline is not what you were expecting at all, but and it twists in a funny direction, and you're surprised, and you laugh out loud. So that's so a horrifying news can be surprising news, and it horrifies you. Humorous news, a funny, a funny story, can surprise you, and it's a very pleasant experience. Now, the thing that's common to both of those things is is the surprise element. Now, when you are uh, not fighting space aliens, but rather when the conflict is between humans, right, when you have uh, one human group in sharp collision with the other human group. Uh, the surprise there there may be horror at the prospect of those bad guys taking over, but there's a lot you have a lot more in common with the people on the other side of the line than you do with the space aliens, right which means that when you tell a joke at their expense and it surprises it surprises in a way that is funny to all the people on your side of the line and sort of devastating to the people on the other side of the line because they get the joke but can't laugh at it. All right? They get they they see why all the people on your side are laughing at it, but they because of their commitments, because of their loyalties, they can't laugh at it. Orwell said basically, Orwell pointed out that humor in this sort of conflict, humor is deeply subversive. All right, it's deeply subversive. If you ever want an instructive Exercise. Look up online, classic Russian jokes during the Soviet era. What what sorts of underground dark humor jokes uh, were being told by Russians about the uh, about the communists running everything? And those jokes, with their insight, were deeply subversive. Uh, it's a it's a weapon. It's an effective weapon. And in this last round it's been commonly said and i think it's very true objectively true that the left can't meme some of the memes that have come out of the uh, this this whole discipline this whole art form of meming is a very young art form but conservatives have mastered it and the left simply can't do it the left is really poor at meming so humor is an effective weapon And Christians, particularly Christians, need to realize that there is a line that separates humor that is godly, chivalrous, pointed, and appropriate from what you might call scurrilous abuse. So it's, um, I think of that part in The Last Battle where King Tyrion says, when Eustace has gotten beside himself and starts yelling at the dwarves for shooting the horses and he's yelling at them as filthy, treacherous little swine. And Tyrion says, Peace, Eustace, Uh, do not scold like a kitchen girl. Uh, No warrior scolds. Either courteous words or hard knocks are his only language. I think that that idea of chivalry is very important. So, every Christian ought to know that there is a kind of scurrilous abuse that is off-limits to the Christian. And also, incidentally, when it descends to that level, frequently, overwhelmingly, stops being funny. And there's a way, there. there is the sort of taunt or jab or or thrust that is very funny, very pointed, very effective, and is not inconsistent with your profession of Christ at all. So, if you have a gift at memeing, go right ahead, right? Remember there's a line, and, um, and realize that uh, you are to stay on the right side of it, but as you stay on the right side of it, enjoy yourself. Will be God. So, we are continuing on with the podcast, and we have, uh, this is podcast 229, and not surprisingly, this is hamartiology. The word ekluo, ekluo, means to faint, and it occurs three times in the New Testament when it comes, when it involves a matter of sin or a question of sin. Because this is our hamartiology class, we are going to address these three. So, the first is an exhortation not to grow weary in the task of good works. Don't grow weary in the task of good works. Galatians 6.9 says this, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There's our word. If, if We're going to reap if we faint not. Ekluo means to faint. If you're engaged in a task that has a time of harvest in it, then to collapse before that harvest is to have done a bunch of backbreaking work up to that point for nothing. In order to come through the harvest, it is necessary to faint not. The exhortation reminds us that the work we're doing is, in fact, farm work. Uh, the work of ministry is farm work. We're growing things, and that means there's a harvest ahead. Don't do all the work of preparing, plowing, weeding, and so on, to then let the crop rot in the field. The enemy, when it comes to this point, is clearly weariness. You just run out of gas. The solution is to remember the coming harvest and pace yourself so that you don't run out of gas until the last of the harvest is in the barn. So, don't grow weary in well-doing, Galatians says, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Take care that you don't faint and take care that you realize at the beginning that you're running a marathon not a 100 yard dash which means that you pace yourself you hold something in reserve so that you can you shouldn't have anything left by the time you're done but you have to pace yourself so you know exactly how much you have left and you spend it all in the last backstretch i'm mixing metaphors here but you know in hebrews there's a connection between weariness and fainting also in hebrews 12:3 It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So, consider the Lord Jesus. This is referring to the opposition that the godly receive from the ungodly or sinners. Jesus handled these perfectly and we're instructed to look at him for our example in this. It says, Consider him that endured such contradiction, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So, I should think about how Jesus stood firm throughout the entire course of his ministry and throughout the entire course of his trial. I'm to meditate on how Jesus did it. Then, uh, just a couple of verses later, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as, to, as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Don't faint when God rebukes you. The chastening of the Lord is also an experience that brings a harvest, the peaceful fruit of an upright life, as the author of Hebrews tells us there in Hebrews 12. So, uh, discipline is something that brings about a harvest. When the Lord takes us in hand, and it seems to us that He's really working us over, we need to remember the harvest and not faint. We need to remember the harvest and make sure to not faint this means that godliness means thinking in terms of time your sanctification depends upon your sense of the narrative your sense of your place in the story uh, you're not going to be able to if if you're just out in a field and you've got a scythe in your hands or or a plow in your hands and it's a hot sun and a slow mule and you're just suffering there you aren't going to be able to acquit yourself well unless you know the whole story unless you frame it as plowing through harvest and when you're being disciplined by the lord it's got to be through the harvest through the uh, where you understand that you receive the discipline of the lord so that you come to this glorious fruition Let's go. So, we're continuing on with uh, the podcast, episode 229, and, well, this is—I uh, want to tell you about something. I'm, you could probably get it online. Uh, this is a, a doctoral dissertation, not a book. Maybe someday it'll be a book. I hope it's going to be a book someday. Uh, but it's a, it was uh, the doctoral dissertation written by Grant Horner, and it's called The Heresy of John Milton, Calvinist. Grant Horner wrote The Heresy of John Milton, Calvinist. Now, if you want a little, a little taste of this, Canon Press has a, got a copy of Paradise Lost, which of course is by John Milton, and the worldview introduction to to that is written by Grant Horner. So it's coming from the same perspective. It's not as detailed, but it's um you'll you'll get a good taste of it. And if you can track down this um, Heresy of John Milton Calvinist, uh, the doctoral dissertation. If you're at all interested in uh, literary history, uh, then this is, would be a fascinating read uh, for you. I just recently finished it, and what it boils down to is the received wisdom in literary, historical literary criticism is that John Milton was culturally a Puritan, but that he was doctrinally heterodox, that he was Arminian and that he was, um, and probably uh, beyond Arminian, probably an Arian, and uh, just positively heretical when it comes to the um, Trinity. So, um, and I think that there is a, a little bit of wish fulfillment here. Uh, we popularly divide up the great, the great epic poets as including four, four men, Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton, Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton, and for many people who believe that Calvinists have no soul, you know, their knock against um, Calvinism is that Calvinists are just logic logic chopping machines, doctrine machines, and they have no soul. Well, I think this is just a historical slander. Some of the greatest poets in the English language, George Herbert, Andrew Marvell, uh, were. Calvinists. And uh, Horner argues in this dissertation that John Milton was a Calvinist. Now, I'd heard a little bit about this, and when I came to read this, I was thinking that the case was going to rest on stuff like uh, Milton's heterodoxy is sometimes attributed to a manuscript that was found in his his possession after his death, and the manuscript was um, heterodox, and it was an unsigned Manuscript, but it was assumed it's assumed to be Milton's, and okay, it was in his possession, da 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 da. and um but Milton served under Cromwell during the interregnum, and his uh, his service included being a censor for Cromwell, determining what was going to be allowed to be published or not. and so i thought I thought the argument of this dissertation was going to be largely on the basis of like background historical data like that. Why? why this was probably somebody else's manuscript and so on. But what Horner does and he does it very effectively in my mind is he goes through and analyzes John Milton's poetry directly. And I would say the hinge of Horner's argument is that in, in Paradise Lost what Milton is attempting to do is quote justify the ways of God to man. That's what Milton is set out to do. Justify the ways of God to man. And Horner's argument is pretty simple. He says, Arminians don't have to do that. Arminians don't have to justify the ways of God to man. Nobody ever says to an Arminian, if what you're saying about God is true, that he gives everyone free will, then why does God still find fault for who resists his will? No one ever, ever, ever says that. So, I um, I was a conservative evangelical Arminian for a number of years and i was uh, the first oh 10 years or so of my ministry in the first 10 years of my uh, uh, pastorate i was by default some sort of armenian and i was a witnessing christian and i was you know i was active in preaching and teaching and so on and during all the years in my time of witnessing in the navy during those times i was never ever challenged by someone saying Well, if what you're saying is true, why does God still find fault with us then? No one ever did did that. Now, what they did do is because I taught salvation by grace, I I was able to generate the objection that Paul generates in Romans 6, where people would say, well, if we're saved by grace, then what's to keep us from sending up a storm? Because I was teaching grace, I generated the objection that the teaching of grace generates and that the Apostle Paul generated. So, I, would, I could get the response that Paul got in Romans 6. I could get that. But it wasn't until I became a Calvinist that I started to generate the objection that is leveled against Paul in Romans 9. And then I couldn't get people to stop saying it. If God's, I'm thinking, you do realize that this objection is in the Bible, and you do realize that it's the objection that's being thrown at the apostle Paul, right? Well, this, I think, is the hinge of Horner's argument he says that, that uh, John Milton is being carefully, soundly, meticulously Calvinist. He's arguing Calvinist theology. He's arguing for Calvinist theology, and he knows that Calvinist theology far, far better than many of the literary critics who don't really understand what Reformed theology is all about. So, uh, ba- basically, I'll, I'll sum it up this way. Grant Horner has convinced me that John Milton was a Calvinist. He was an Orthodox Christian and a Calvinist, which means that one fourth of the great poets in the history of the entire human race was a Puritan Calvinist. And that might be a bitter pill for some people to swallow. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Doug's page on Canon Plus. There you can listen to his audiobooks, watch his sermons and more. Just click the link in the show notes and start listening today.